Now, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Jeremy. I'm the student minister here. Those of you who do know me, uh, I, I don't think it's any secret uh, that I'm a big baseball fan. I love my baseball. And when it comes to my love for baseball, um, you m- maybe can't say that I'm superstitious. You might say that I'm a, a little bit stitious. Uh, but those of you that actually know me that know that that's a lie, that I am, in fact, incredibly superstitious when it comes to my sports fandom. Isn't that right, Andrew? Yes, yes, it is. All right, and so it's not just, you know, me in my house. The Lord has been very kind to me, and he's blessed me with a wife who is just as in love with baseball as I am and is just as superstitious about it as I am. So just to pull back the curtain, she wore her jersey twice during the season, and the Braves lost both times, and so she refused to wear it through the playoffs, which was a great idea until it wasn't. Now I'm the opposite. I wore my jersey for every game. If they lost one of the playoff games, or during the season if they lost, I immediately washed it because I had to get the bad vibes out. I mean, this makes sense, right? I'm not crazy, I promise. Now, if they won, then I had the real internal struggle because then the question became, all right, the shirt I'm wearing under the jersey, do I wash it? But I couldn't do that because it would get the good vibes out. So then it's, well, do I wear a different shirt tomorrow? that might just throw the whole thing off. Cost the Braves a game. Now, every time I'm having this debate with myself or I'd go to throw my jersey in the washer after a loss, I would realize, this is silly. You're being insane. Nothing I did could manipulate the results that were going to happen in some stadium that was hundreds of miles away. And yet, to my shame, there was still a very real internal struggle I have to do my part if the Braves are going to win, and if I don't do it, then they, they, they might lose, which they will do anyways. But anyways, so the last time that we were in Matthew, uh, we read about Jesus cursing the fig tree and saw that this connected back to his rejection of the insincere worship that was happening at the temple. He then taught his disciples about the way that his people would pray, And so this came on the heels of his driving out the marketplace that the Jews had set up within the outer court, which, remember, that's known as the court of the Gentiles. This was the only place at the temple where non-Jews could come to worship the one true God. It was also the only place where non-Jews could observe worship of the one true God. But the Jews, like Michael has, has said, basically turned it into the New York Stock Exchange. So he condemned the Jews for their insincere worship, for their failure to pray, and for not modeling worship of God for the nations. And then after that, he began to heal the blind and the lame, and he was receiving praise from from children, which prompted a uh, confrontation with the chief priests and the scribes. And so that leads into the passage this morning, where Jesus is going to return to the temple and is confronted again, this time by the chief priest and the elders of the people. And so this will be a theme that carries us through the next several chapters in Matthew as Jesus repeatedly rebukes and condemns the Jewish religious authorities for their unbelief. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Matthew 21. We're going to look at verses 23 to 27. And they say this, And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching, and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. 
If you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, this is your word. And it's by your spirit through your word that faith is produced and grown in your people. So Lord, please grant us wisdom to understand the text that we have in front of us this morning. And please be kind to us, working through your word to reveal sin and work in us through your spirit. We might put it away, to put it out of our lives. Help us to live holy lives, Lord, to the glory of your name. Increase love for you in our hearts and desires to see worship of you spread. Amen. So I, I really think there's just one main point in this passage, and so then we'll add in an application point on the, on the back end. But that, that one main point that I think really kind of summarizes this, this passage is that, the, that unbelieving hearts will not acknowledge the authority of Christ. So after cursing the fig tree, Jesus and his disciples, like we said, they return to Jerusalem and they return to the temple complex. And so when we read that he entered the temple, we need to understand that he's in the same area, this outer court from which he had driven out the buyers, the sellers, and the money lenders. Now, in addition to, to being the only area where Gentiles could gather to pray and observe the worship of God, it was also an area where teachers could gather their disciples and teach. This, this court was surrounded by uh, many porticos, and if you're like me and you read portico, and you're like, I, don't, I don't know what that is, think like an area right outside our front door. Covered area with tall columns, uh, so it's a, a good place to, to meet and to chat. And so all of that to say, Jesus is in an area where teachers were expected to be if they were going to get their uh, disciples together at the temple and teach them. But, in first century Israel, it, it wasn't acceptable for teachers who had not received formal recognition from the religious authorities to be teaching. So, this, so what Jesus is doing here is, is taboo. It's, it's taboo for someone to just come on the scene and begin to teach like he had done. So as these religious authorities are approaching him, we have to assume that, that they felt like they were coming at Jesus from a, a place of strength. You might, may read this, and in your mind, and this is where I go, it's like you got the blue flashy lights that light up Jesus in the crowd, and they walk up and say, you know, license and registration, please. Show us, show us your credentials. So we read here that he was approached by the chief priests and the elders. And we already read about the chief priests earlier in the chapter. I mentioned them a minute ago. They showed up in verse 15. They argued with Jesus about the children who were, who were praising him. You know, what we said of them is that these are religious authorities who were in charge of the temple and everything that went on there. But the elders of the people are relatively new to us in Matthew's gospel account. Up until this point, they've only been mentioned twice. The first time was in chapter 15, uh, when the Pharisees challenged Jesus because his disciples were not washing their hands, and they said, according to the tradition of the elders. That interaction tells us a little bit about the elders of the people, that these were 
uh, people with, who were uh, religious authority, who had responsibility in teaching the law and also how the law was to be applied to, to Jewish life. Now, the second time that they came up was, I guess, just a chapter later in Matthew 16. After Peter has uh, made the confession that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus then tells the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. So, these were likely non-priestly members of the Sanhedrin. They were heads of the most influential lay families in Israel. And so what's, what's happening here in using these terms to introduce us to the people who are coming forward to uh, confront and challenge Jesus, it seems like what, Jesus, what Matthew is doing is introducing us to representative members of the Sanhedrin, but he's describing them by their clerical status rather than theological positions. So not Sadducees and Pharisees, chief priests, elders of the people. So with that in mind, it's important to remember, talking about the Sanhedrin, that the Sanhedrin was like the Jewish Supreme Court. They're the highest authority in Judaism. And so they're coming to Jesus to question him because he is acting like somebody with a lot of authority, and they know that they haven't given him any. And so based on that, they ask him by what authority he's doing the things that he's doing. Now, Matthew doesn't clarify for us what it was that they meant, but they're probably focusing on the events that have taken place up to this point in the chapter. You know, we're talking about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And remember that event, that is chalked, filled with, with uh, imagery and symbolism. We know that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. It recalls Zechariah and what was prophesied in and by Zechariah, that the king would come riding in on the colt of the donkey. And so Jesus has done this, so this is a very kingly uh, entry and imagery as he's coming into Jerusalem. We also have, his, obviously, his running the marketplace off of the temple grounds. We have the healing of the blind and the lame, which, remember, that then has connotations back to when David took Jerusalem from the Jebusites and a misapplication of something that David said in that, in that moment. There's the receiving praise from children. There's his teaching. It's probably the whole gamut is what they're questioning him about. And it doesn't at all seem likely that they're coming to check him out just to kind of make sure that he's good to go, make sure that this guy who's teaching is up to snuff, and then going to let him go on his way. No, in questioning Jesus, their intention was to put a stop to this troublemaker from Galilee. I mean, you can almost hear in their, uh, what they say to him, just who do you think you are? And I think we pick up on that because of how Jesus responds to them. Now, we need to understand here that, that what Jesus does in his response is, is masterful. And that shouldn't surprise us since he's the very wisdom of God veiled in human flesh. Now, on the surface, it, it may seem like Jesus is ducking the question, like he's trying to send them on some wild goose chase so that he can change the subject without having to answer the question, but that's not at all what's happening. Now, for one, Jesus responding with a question of his own was typical for rabbinic debate. Jesus is following the cultural norms for an occasion like this. He's well within his right to respond with a question. But more than that, the question that he asks them is actually getting at the heart of the question they have for him. If they're able to answer his question rightly, then they will understand what authority Jesus has and where that authority comes from. So Jesus' question back to them is about the baptism of John. Did it come from heaven or from man? And that maybe seems a little odd, right? Jesus is taking the long way around here, but that's not the case. Let's consider what we, what we know about John the Baptist. 
So in Luke, we learn that John was the son of a priest, Zechariah, who was promised that he would have a son, despite the fact that he and his wife were old and his wife was unable to have children. You might remember that an angel appeared to Zechariah to deliver the news, and the angel had this to say about John. This is Luke 1, 14 to 17. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the dis disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so what we see is that John was set apart by God for a very particular purpose, to turn the people of Israel to God. Not just back to God, as if this generation had been faithful to God, but then had just fallen down on the job, had gotten spiritually lazy. No, his role was to turn the people to God. And he did this through his ministry out in the wilderness, where he commanded the people of Israel to repent, for the kingdom of God was at hand. This included baptizing Jews. And if you can remember all the way back to when Michael preached on, on, on Matthew chapter 3, then you will remember that baptism was not something that the Jews did. Baptism was reserved for Gentiles who turned from their old ways of life and committed to Judaism. So John was baptizing Jews who were announcing that they were turning from their old way of life, from living like Gentiles and committing themselves to be faithful to the Lord. His ministry was about getting people ready for the coming of the Lord. John said as much in his own confrontation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees who had come out to him where he was baptizing to see what he was doing. This is from Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. John's words to them, it says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so after this, Jesus comes to John to be baptized, and when this happens, John tries to stop him, if you remember, saying that he needed to be baptized by Jesus instead, clearly identifying Jesus and his view of Jesus as his superior. Well, then when we get into the gospel account of the Apostle John, we get an even clearer picture of what John the Baptist thought about Jesus. So John 1, 29-34. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God." So John's baptism and the whole of his ministry revolved around preparing people for the coming of the Messiah, and John himself identified Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Now, 
we know that, that John wobbled a little bit while he was in prison. We read about this in, in Matthew 11. If you remember, he sends uh, messengers to Jesus, sends his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one that we're waiting for, or should we look for another? And if you remember, Jesus' response to them was not a stern rebuke. It was maybe a soft rebuke, but it contained a great deal of encouragement as well. Jesus pointed to his own ministry and how he was accomplishing in his teaching and in his miracles what the prophet Isaiah had said the Messiah would do. And so he affirmed his identity for John. What John had said of Jesus was true, and he could hold to that. So then coming all the way back to Jesus' question to the chief priests and the elders of the people, if they believed that John's baptism was from heaven, it would have done more for them than just affirm John's ministry. It would require that they acknowledge and agree with what John had said about Jesus. And so in doing so, their question would have been answered. Jesus' authority was from God. But they are blinded by unbelief. Their unbelief is revealed in the conversation that they have among themselves in response to Jesus' question. See, they, they realize they can't say that John's baptism was from heaven. Because if they did, like we just saw, it would answer their question about Jesus. What that means is they would have been morally obligated to believe what he said about Jesus and to become followers of Jesus themselves. But they rejected that. They weren't having that. So they simply could not give this as an answer to the question. But, if they answered honestly and said in front of all these people what they really thought about John... They didn't view him as a prophet of God. Well, then the people might riot because of the reverence that they had for John. So they punt. They refused to give an answer because they rejected the implication of John's baptism being from heaven. And they were not willing to face the consequences of saying that it was from man. In turn, Jesus declines to answer their question. But unlike them, Jesus is not punting. See, they question Jesus because their unbelief caused them to reject God's revelation. What should have been clear to them was withheld because their hard hearts had blinded them to all prior revelation concerning Jesus. And now this interaction with the chief priests and the elders of the people is very similar to two prior interactions that the Jewish authorities had had with Jesus earlier on in, in Matthew. The first time, in, in Matthew twelve thirty eight, it, it came after they had accused him of casting out demons by the power of, of Beelzebul. So you're casting out demons by the, the power of the prince of demons. The second was in Matthew 16, 1, and this came after Jesus' uh, miraculous feeding of the, of the 4,000. And so in both cases, the Jewish authorities wanted more signs because they rejected Jesus' teaching and his miracles as evidence that he was the Christ. And both times, Jesus told them that the only sign that they would receive was the sign of Jonah, his resurrection from the dead. Here, Jesus offers them nothing. Having already rejected clear revelation, Jesus is under no obligation to respond to them and to provide, uh, or to meet their request for him to provide his credentials. 
those with eyes to see and ears to hear would have received him as the greater one that John had said would come after him. But the religious authorities of the Jewish people were blind. And the fruit of their unbelief was that they simply could not see or recognize the Messiah. There wasn't an answer here that would have satisfied their hard, unbelieving hearts. Had Jesus plainly said that his authority was given to him by God the Father, they wouldn't have believed him. They would have charged him with blasphemy. And we know this because that's what happens just a few days later. He rightly declares himself to be the Christ, and Caiaphas, who is the high priest, tears his robes and charges him with blasphemy. But within a week, the greatest revelation of the source and the substance of Jesus' authority would come in his resurrection from the dead. The faithless, unbelieving Jewish authorities may have conspired with the Romans to see Jesus put to death, but this was all done by the authority and sovereign will of the Father. Jesus' life was not taken from him. He laid it down in the place of his sinful people. Jesus, in submitting to the will of the Father, willingly accepted the full force of God's wrath against sin and had it poured out on himself in his death on the cross. Through repentance of sin and trust in Jesus' substitutionary death to atone for the sins of his people, those who repent and believe are set free from sin and made right with God. Sin debt has been paid in full by his blood. But his sacrificial death was not an end to itself. He died in order to rise again. The resurrection was God's declaration that Jesus was innocent. The Father saying of the Son that he is innocent. And that Jesus' atoning death accomplished what it was meant to accomplish, providing justification, being made right with God for all who repent and believe. The resurrection is the definitive proof of Jesus' divine authority, that he was of God and was God, veiled in human flesh, who wields authority over all things, including sin and death. And for his obedience, even to death on the cross, Christ has received the name that is above every name, and at his, knee, at his name every knee will bow and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. His authority continues to be revealed as he gathers those for which he died. In Matthew 28, he's going to say to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and on the basis of that authority, he sends his disciples out to make disciples, teaching them to observe all that he commanded. At his command, those he redeems through the shedding of his blood go into the world and make known the mercy of God through Christ that others might be united to him by faith. And at his request, the Father has sent the Spirit who works through the word of God as it is proclaimed by the people of God. The Spirit of God causes those who belong to Christ to be born again. And it is by the Spirit that God's people call out to God as Father. Jesus laid down 
And he took back up his life under and through the authority of the Father so that his people will receive eternal life from him and through him. And so this morning, my plea to you is if you have not submitted to his lordship by turning from your sin and trusting in him alone for salvation, come to him and receive eternal life by faith. Confess your sins and receive his mercy and grace. Worship him now. Now, Christians recognize that we are, are sent into a world that is hostile to this message. People don't like being taught that they're sinners, that they're not in control, that they're not in charge. And unbelieving hearts refuse to recognize Jesus' divine authority. The rejection of his authority is at the core of of human sinfulness and unbelief. We see that all the way back in the fall, when Adam and Eve's sin was a result of their desire to be their own authority and their failure to trust what God had said, had said to them. And so like them, we all have denied and rejected the rule and reign of God over us. So to, follow, to follow Christ, we needed our dead hearts and need our dead hearts, unbelieving hearts, to be made alive by the Spirit's work through the proclamation of the Word of God. And so for the people of God, Recognizing this should compel us to share the good news of what God has done in Christ and to urge people to come under the rule and reign of Christ our King. And not only that, but understanding the authority of Christ and that He's received it from the Father should cause us to be confident in sharing this good news. But instead of trusting the Word of God to do the work, our own unbelief results in us trying to play the role of the Holy Spirit by opting for pragmatism in our evangelism and in our churches. And so our application point this morning is this, is that the authority of Christ must shape our efforts to spread the worship of God. Worshiping God and spreading worship of Him should delight us. Christians who have been saved from his wrath by his own mercy will love proclaiming his immeasurable worth, both in our own worship of him and by telling others of what he has done, which is in and of itself an act of worship. But our failure to trust him to gather his people through the simple proclamation of the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection leads us to approach evangelism like it's a broken puzzle. Now, have you ever heard, or maybe you yourself have said, we have to earn the right to share the gospel with others? Or, or maybe some other form of that idea. We have to show people that we love them before we can share the gospel. We have to build a relationship with them before we can share the gospel. We have to earn their trust before we can share the gospel. This all boils down to the same idea. We have to put the jumbled puzzle pieces back together before we are actually able to tell another person about the atoning work of Christ. But these are just rules that we've established for ourselves. We act like these are things that we have to do so that the person will be more open and more receptive to the gospel once we decide that we've reached the point where it's safe to share it. But can we be honest? More often than not, when we approach evangelism this way, we never reach the point where we actually share the gospel. 
We keep feeling like that there is, there's more that we need to do, more that we have to do to make them more comfortable with us, more open to the gospel. But isn't the issue that we're the ones who are uncomfortable? The problem is that we don't trust the Word to do the work. Our own hearts betray us and reveal our own struggles with unbelief, that Christ is not able to gather His people to Himself without a little extra help on our own end. We need to soften their hearts first. Then, then they'll listen to the gospel. Then they'll trust Christ. So we give time and effort to serve others, meeting necessities like giving food, water, or clothing. We try to earn their trust through simple acts of kindness. We work at building relationships by having people in our homes and, and letting our kids play with the neighbor's kids or engaging coworkers about our common interests, sports, movies, music. And I want to be perfectly clear I'm not saying those are bad things. Those are good things. In fact, I don't want you to, 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 to twist my words. That's, that's not at all what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you should not do those things. I want to be clear. Do those things. Those are good things. They're all important parts of showing others what the kingdom of God is like and pointing to the kindness and the mercy of Christ. But it's not evangelism. And when we say it is, we confuse showing people the love of Christ with telling people about the ultimate manifestation of God's love to them in the cross of Christ. Why, why do we think that we have to earn the right or people's trust before we can tell them about God's mercy and warn them of His coming wrath against sin? If we rightly understand the gospel, then we understand that God not only saves us from sin and death, but from his own wrath against human sinfulness and our refusal to worship him. And if we think about it that way, then why do we feel like we need to earn anything before telling people of what God has done to save sinners from the wrath to come? I mean, do we realize that people are in danger, eternal danger, if they do not repent and trust Christ for salvation? If we did, we would warn them because that's what you would do in any other situation where someone is in danger. Think about it this way. Say so you're watching TV one night when all of a sudden, you know, local news anchor broke in with a story about a raging wildfire. It's a safe distance away, but it is heading into your area. Maybe it comes to your neighborhood. You've got credible eyewitnesses. You've got firefighters who are giving accounts about the blaze, and they are saying that, in fact, yes, it is. It's coming towards your neighborhood or your apartment complex, wherever it is you live. So the next day, you realize you've got some time. You're out for a walk, and you see your neighbor. You and your neighbor start to, start to chit-chat. Y'all are talking. They're telling you about the plans that they have for the weekend, just shooting the breeze. But the wildfire never comes up. And the way that they're talking about their plans, you start wondering to yourself, did they hear the same thing that I did? Do they know what's, what's coming? And so later that day, you actually begin to see smoke on the horizon. It, it, it's billowing down from the hill that's just beyond your neighborhood. By nightfall, you can see an orange glow on the horizon and even flames that are beginning to lick at the trees at the top of the hill. So this fire that was far off, it's now on the cusp of barreling down the hill and coming right into your neighborhood. 
And you realize, well, the whole place is about to go up in smoke. So you start grabbing whatever valuables you can and throwing them into your car because you know that you need to escape. But as you're going back and forth to your car, you look over and you see your neighbor through a window. And they clearly have no idea what kind of danger they're in. They're kicked back, they're watching TV, they're eating dinner with their family without a care in the world. And let me ask, in that moment, would you say, nah, I don't really know them that well, I probably need to build a relationship with them before I tell them about this fire? Or, or would you say, I need to show them that they can trust me and that I care about them so that they will know that they can trust me when I tell them about the fire? No, you wouldn't. There isn't a scenario in which you do not run over and bang on the door until they answer it so that you can warn them that their life is in grave danger and that they need to do something. So why do we do that when it comes to evangelism? People's souls are at stake. They are dangling over the pit of hell, and the only thing that keeps them from falling in is the sovereign hand of God. So why do we allow feelings that border on superstition to create rules for us that Christ didn't? Trying to manipulate the results of evangelism through the rules that we tack on is not faithful. It's trying to create a back door that might cause the heart of the person we are engaging to be more receptive to the gospel. And it's the same lack of trust that results in concern about the order and the flow of a worship service. We want sermons to be engaging and not too long. They need to be practical. We want music that makes us feel good, like we're really worshiping and that kind of pumps us up, it hits us in the feels. We want prayers to be short. We want them to be to the, to the point and only at the appropriate places in the service so that the services aren't too long. We want the different ministries of the church to be attractive, things that people are going to want to be a part of. And we feel this way because of our own boredom and dissatisfaction with worship and are afraid that if it isn't appealing to us, then it's not going to appeal to those who are outside of the church. And if it isn't appealing to them and it doesn't make them want to be there, how will we reach them? Tell them about Jesus. That's not any different than saying that we have to earn the right to share the gospel with someone. In both cases, we are relying on human effort to soften someone else's heart and make it more receptive to hearing and receiving the gospel. But we can no more do that than we can raise a person from the dead. We do not need to feel like we have to earn the right to tell people the truth. We do not have to earn the right to do something that has been commanded to us to do by Christ, our Lord and King. We have the moral obligation because of his death, his resurrection, and his word to us. And love for God produces desires to obey his word and desires to see worship of him increase. It's our love for him that produces love for neighbor. And what better way to love them than to urge them to be joined to Christ by faith and receive from him eternal life. This should be what propels us out into the world, that we would go out and boldly proclaim the good news of Christ crucified and raised from the dead. Our love for God that produces love for people. And he's established the means by which we back up our pleas to others to repent and believe. His Spirit works in us, providing the means and motivations to know and apply the Scriptures to our lives. 
We back up our words with actions by living lives that are marked by patience, by kindness, by gentleness, by mercy. This is what makes our evangelism in our churches appealing when people encounter Christians who are earnestly seeking the glory of God. When love for God produces worship of Him in things like how Christians speak to and about others, particularly one another, how we work, how we interact and think and talk about money, how we treat our spouse, our children, our parents. Our greatest appeal comes when holiness is our aim and obedience to God is the driving desire in the mundane parts of everyday life. And His Spirit works in us to produce trust in the means that He has established to gather His people. In Isaiah 55.11, the Lord said that His Word would succeed in the thing for which He sent it. Jesus is the incarnate Word sent into the world to save sinners to the praise and glory of God. It's through the proclamation of this message that, that Christ gathers His people to Himself. Our best efforts do not create greater receptiveness to the gospel in hard, unbelieving hearts. That's the work of the Spirit. Unbelieving hearts do not recognize the authority of Jesus, but hearts who have been made alive, sinners who have been born again by the Spirit, do. So we can share the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection in full confidence, trusting that by His divine authority, Christ will have the prize for which he died to the glory of the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. I pray it would do its work in us. It's work that only you can do through your word by your spirit, and we pray that you would be merciful and kind to do it. And that you would propel us to go out into the world to make known the riches and glory of Christ and the mercy that you have shown to sinners through his death on the cross in our place. And that you, Lord, your church would continue to gather those who are yours. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.